This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. So thank you. Um, and thank all of you. I want to thank you for being here. I know some of you are here because you have to be here. Um, but hopefully, even having to be here is going to be something that um, maybe at the end of the day you're going to say it was worthwhile because this is just not going to be about me talking at you. I'm going to share my story, but I also love to have Q&A in the sense I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask me questions either about the court, about myself, or anything um, that might pique your interest. But I really think it's always important to have a dialogue uh, and not just for me to come out here and act like I know everything and tell you. So I'm hoping that there's going to be an opportunity to do that. So I marry you. I've been on your Supreme Court since May of last year. I was appointed uh, by Governor Inslee, and then I was subsequently elected um, statewide uh, for a two-year term, and then I will be up again in 2016. Prior to coming to the court, I was a trial court judge for 14 years in King County Superior Court. And there I heard cases uh, of every sort, so civil, criminal, family law, juvenile, uh, mental health proceedings, civil commitment proceedings. So the whole ball of wax in terms of everything that Superior Court does, uh, the bench in King County just rotated. So we did everything, um, which was just remarkable in terms of being a judge. Prior to coming to the King County Superior Court, I was in the King County Prosecutor's Office. So that just gives you a little bit of a snapshot. Now I'm going to go into real reversal and just tell you a little bit about myself in terms of my personal story. I always find it interesting um, when the titles of many of the talks that I'm invited to give focus on me being the first. Um, and it's funny because I don't think of myself that way, but the reality is that I'm the first Latina on the Supreme Court, I'm the first Asian on the Supreme Court, I'm the first open lesbian on the Supreme Court. You know, so some people might say, well, what difference does that make? And I'll have a conversation with you about that. Um, but the other is it's an incredible burden. It, it is, um, because part of me also feels like there's expectations that are greater than those that are placed on others when you're sort of the first. Many of you in this room may be the first to go to college in your family or the first to do something, so you know what that might be like, whether it's the first to be on the soccer team or the first to fail, whatever that might be. But being the first, there's no question about it. There's a little bit of pressure um, because people expect um, that you're creating a path for others. And when you're in that position to have to do that, there's no question that there's a level of anxiety about not making mistakes. Um, I'm aware of the fact that suddenly I'm a role model for a lot of people, role model for young girls, role model for a lot of minority individuals, and perhaps there are people who never would have seen themselves being a lawyer or Supreme Court justice, and that my appointment to that somehow creates a path and an opportunity for them. So I accept that. It's a burden. There's no question about it, but I accept it because by accepting that burden, I also feel that I can unpack this idea that somehow the first are the superheroes. The first are not the superheroes, right? The first may have been given an opportunity, or maybe we might have had to work extra doubly hard to be where we are, but we're not superheroes. We're just people just like you 
walking every single day, struggling with the exact same issues, working as hard as you um, in everyday life. And it's really important for me to go around the state to try to unpack it because the court belongs to you. The court should be transparent. The court should be accessible. And if there's anything that I've been wanting to say to so many young kids that I see is imagine yourself in my position. There's nothing that's been more fun for me than being a role model for a lot of young kids, especially kids who might not necessarily think of themselves of having an opportunity. There's nothing like going to the valley, right, in Yakima or Tri-Cities and saying to young kids, you too could do this. You too could have the same opportunity and I want you to envision yourself in my job. I want you to envision yourself being a lawyer. So I recognize that that's a reality and again, it's a burden I assume. When I was appointed to the court, there was no question as well that I was qualified as a superior court judge for 14 years. But the real pressure was to appoint anybody but not somebody from King County, right? There was this mantra throughout the media that the best appointment should come from anywhere else but not from King County. And the principle and the idea behind it was a good one in the sense that the court should have diverse experience and diverse perspectives. And I will tell you that the court should. You do not want a court in which everybody's agreeing all of the time. You want people with different experiences, different perspectives, different ideologies if they bring ideologies, but you want diversity no matter what on any court. And the only thing that I have to say that was important for the governor to balance is that including geographical diversity needed to be also diversity of life experience. And I do feel that the governor did that with my appointment in a sense of acknowledging that there are a host of voices that have never had the opportunity to be at the table at the Supreme Court. Despite the richness and the wealth of experience that the Asian community has had in the Northwest, there never had been an Asian on the Supreme Court in terms of our long history in the Northwest. For the LGBT community, right, it was a peak time in history just not too long ago that finally, I think, the gay and lesbian community felt that there was recognition that we exist. Recognition that we too have families and want to participate equally in society in some fashion. And so my appointment, I think, said to the community, I see you, I recognize you, and you too have a place at the table to be a part of these discussions. And so it was an incredible moment for me because I have to admit when I applied, I didn't necessarily think I was gonna get the job. I wanted to apply because I wanted a trial court judge to be at the Supreme Court because I had some views as well that the Supreme Court was a little academic and didn't have enough trial court judges, people who were in the trenches, people who understood what trial court judges do because trial court judges are the workhorses of the judiciary. They are the people who are applying the law every single day. So did I have a perspective? It was that the trial court judge needed to also be at the Supreme Court. So I have to admit, I thought, well, I don't know if this governor's going that direction given where everything was. So I was very surprised when I finally, after numerous interviews, the governor said, if I asked you to serve on the Supreme Court, would you accept? I thought to myself, I can't believe this is real. 
And then I was really surprised by the media attention that I got, not only in the state of Washington, but from all over the world. I mean, we had clippings from Indonesia, Malaysia. I'm very active on Facebook, and I can't tell you the number of people that sent messages, again, from all of Asia and Australia, and people just saying, we read about your appointment, and we celebrated. Now, of course, that was just on the heels of the fact that not too long before then, I was the first judge to marry the first same-sex couple in the state of Washington, which also got incredible media attention around the world. Some 12,000 news stories after Washington State was the first, one of the first, by popular vote to somehow say same-sex couples should be married. So it was on the crest of all of that that I think I just had the unique opportunity to be at the right place at the right time. So I also said now I was going to go backwards. And let me tell you something about myself at a personal level. So I was born in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, in a working class neighborhood named Bridgeport. Bridgeport, um, in those days, um, was probably seen as a lower working class community. My mother is Mexican, came from Mexico as an undocumented farm worker and made her way to Chicago. My father came from China, also undocumented, uh, and he worked on a cargo ship for most of his life at that point, I mean in his early 20s. And when that ship finally docked in New York after traveling around the world, he said, I am tired of this life, got off the ship and never went back, made his way to Chicago. They eventually regularized their status, but they were in Chicago with very little resources, met each other, and my father worked for the rest of his life in a factory. My mother happened to be a Catholic, and some of you who are Catholic or of a particular faith community will understand this. My father was not a believer, but he wanted to marry a Catholic girl. So in the 50s, what the church made you do is before you could be married in the church, is you had to make a commitment that the children of the family were going to be raised Catholic and that they would then attend Catholic schools. And my father made that commitment. Now, again, here's a guy, frankly, with very little resources, not much money, um, who made this commitment to raise us Catholic and to do everything that he could to provide for Catholic education. So at that moment, when I was born, my father took $5 out of his paycheck and put it into a bank account as part of my tuition so that by the time I was six years old, I was going to be able to go to a Catholic school. On the south side of Chicago in the inner city, Catholic schools were a safe environment for kids. Um, and that's all my parents were concerned about more than anything else, is keeping my brother and I safe and providing an education because for them, that was the only on-ramp to success. That was the only way that they could be sure that their children might have a different life than one that they had. Did I ever think about college? Never. Because the biggest dream that I had would be that I would have a job as a secretary. And not that that's a bad job. That's a good job, right? It's an honest job. But I did think about college. And the vision that my mother provided for me was really to say to us all the time. And she said to me always, Miha, I do not want your hands to be like mine or your father's. I don't want your hands to be calloused. I don't want your hands to be dirty. I want you to have a job in an office. That was the vision of my parents. The best that they could provide for their kids is give them an opportunity to do something different than what they had to do. 
And I never thought of anything else. I thought, yeah, that's great. I loved my school. I loved going to school. Our parish was our whole community. We did everything at the parish. I went to school there. We went to church there. We had volleyball teams. We did everything, and it was really important to me. So then off I go to high school, not very far away from where I lived. Same idea, same thing. It was a safe environment to go to school. But by the time now I'm in high school, I'm beginning to think, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to get a job? And where am I going to go? And all I could think about, yeah, is I do want to be a secretary. I do want to work in an office. And I do want to be able to bring home a paycheck and help my family. And then there was a teacher who just became an important person in my life that I will never forget. And her name is Joan Finnegan. And Mrs. Finnegan took an interest in me and said to me, did you ever think about going to college? And I thought, no. <laughs> I never thought about going to college because there was nobody there to talk to me about going to college. And she said, I'd like, you to take, I'd like to take you to the college that I went to, which was only 30 miles outside of Chicago. But for my parents, that, was, that could have been 100 miles. I mean, that could have just been in a foreign country as far as they were concerned, is the thought of their daughter who wasn't married going to college away from home and staying there was a real foreign concept. And just think in your own mind, either from your own family or your grandparents or anybody else, right? These are people who still feel like they're foreigners in this country. Their language skills weren't great. Their father never learned to read and write. So the idea of going to college was you know, pretty radical, much less that it was going to be his daughter that was going. She managed to convince them to let me go visit. And I went and I visited it. And it was a campus actually that looked so much like this. Really nice, right? Just nice. It was a nice place. It was clean. It was different than what I had experienced. It was beautiful. And I don't know how, and I still say today, I don't know how she rigged it up because I don't know how I got into there. I just don't know. I remember filling out some paperwork. I remember coming to her coming to my parents' home over and over and over and working them until they finally said it was okay, getting some financial aid and getting some scholarships. I don't know how it got worked out, but it did. And I ended up enrolling at a place called Rosary College. Today it's called Dominican University, but at the time it was Rosary College, small liberal arts college um, right outside of Chicago. And then I knew that I wanted to be like everybody else who had influenced me. I wanted to study religion because I so associated the women who really were good to me, the religious sisters, the good teachers. I wanted to be like them. And I associated it so much with religion and religious life that I said, I want to study theology. I want to do this for other people. I want to introduce goodness. I want to provide people an opportunity, and I wanted to be a role model for others, which is why I decided to study religion. Not really logical, right, because you could be a good person and you could do all those other things. You didn't have to study religion, but for me it was such a strong association that that's what good people do. So I studied theology, religious studies, uh, and then by the time I got to be a senior, I thought, now what do I do? I didn't feel that I could teach. I didn't feel prepared. So it just seemed coincidental that the Catholic Church at the time, the bishop was opening up an office of peace and justice. The title of the office was the Office for the Ministry of Peace and Justice. And I thought, well, this is at the Archdiocese. I should go down and see what that job might be. 
And I interviewed with a priest who was opening up that office, and that's because the Catholic Church at that time, in the early 70s, was really redefining itself in terms of its social mission. The most important thing became working on behalf of justice. It's not only charitable work, but asking what are the systemic causes of poverty? What are the issues that we should be responding to in regard to social justice? I interviewed with this priest, and he said, I would love to hire you because I need a secretary. <laughs> I thought, my dream job, right? This is what I'm going to be that secretary. I took the job. It was a good-paying job. It was a secretarial job. It was a job in an office. It was with the church. It was everything converging as far as I was concerned in terms of all the things right, that seemed right and good. So I worked in the archdiocese, in the Peace and Justice Office, as a secretary, and that was my first professional job. The office didn't know where we were going or what we were doing. And this priest, his name is Frank Kane. He's now a bishop. But Frank Kane, Father Kane, said to me, I don't know what I'm doing. Why don't we just go out and interview and talk to people and ask them what this office should be doing? And we did, and he took me everywhere with him. And we went to the Catholic Worker House, and we went to shelters, and we listened to people about what the issues might be and how the church might address them. At that time, all of Central America and Africa was exploding in terms of revolutions and people really undergoing a lot of change. The recognition, right, of the right to participate in the economy was suddenly becoming something that people wanted to do, right? They wanted to control their own destiny. So we had Central America, Honduras, Nicaragua undergoing radical change, church workers being persecuted. So it was an incredible time in terms of being involved at an international and national level on issues of peace and justice. And after listening for about a year and a half, Father Kane came to me and said, you know, I don't think I need a secretary. I think I need a staff person, and I think you're that person. And suddenly I was promoted to a staff person. <laughs> what did that do? Well, I don't know. It was a new title. It was a little bit more money. But I also then learned from Father Kane how to be involved in public speaking because he gave me opportunities. He taught me. He mentored me. He encouraged me to then think about getting a master's degree while I was working for him, and I did. So I went to Mundelein College, which is now affiliated with Loyola University, and got a master's degree while I was working for him and while we were working on social justice issues. I did that for 10 years and eventually was appointed the director of that office by Cardinal Bernadine. And that was radical because I was the first female to be appointed as the director of a church agency in Chicago at that time. Nobody thought of it as a big deal. I didn't realize how big of a deal it was, but it was a big deal. So for 10 years, I had the opportunity to learn about what it meant to be involved in community organizing, what it meant to really ask the systemic questions about social justice and poverty, had the opportunity to travel around the world, to actually go and see what we were funding in Guatemala in terms of potable water or what we were doing to empower people in Africa. It was an extraordinary opportunity that just happened, in my view, to fall right into my lap. I didn't seek it out. It just happened. It was an opportunity, and I happened to be at the right place at the right time. I happened to meet a community organizer on the south side of Chicago, and we provided a lot of funding to this organization who happened to hire somebody named Barack Obama, right? <laughs> the Campaign for Human Development funded him, and he was a great organizer. 
And then all of a sudden, he says, I'm going to law school. And we lost one of the great organizers in Chicago in terms of being a very credible individual who brought together the idea of organizing in faith-based communities. The marriage of community organizing and church became one. It made sense that these were the natural affiliations. These were people who cared about the issues automatically and already. And all we needed to do was now put that faith into action. It was great. But after 10 years of doing this, I too asked myself, what other tools do I need to do this job? And it became clear to me that law school was the avenue, that I needed tools that would allow me to then say, I can't change your heart, but I can perhaps make this behavior illegal. You don't want to sell your house to this African-American family because it's, right, what, what is in your heart? And I couldn't somehow eradicate racism deep in their heart. I couldn't change the behavior. What I could do as a lawyer is to say, your unwillingness to sell this home to this family is discrimination and illegal, and you're not going to be allowed to do it, regardless of what your personal feelings might be. That's what drew me to law school. So then I enrolled at the University of Notre Dame, and that for me was the perfect school in my own little small mind because I thought I want to study the law in the context of values. And this institution for me stood for the values of something I had known all my life, a particular tradition in a particular context. So I went to Notre Dame, studied law, and while in law school, you would think that I would be studying community organizing and all of that. I happened to join the barrister team and fell in love with trial practice. And suddenly I thought, oh, this is my new calling. I want to be a trial lawyer. I want to work in a courtroom. I moved to the Northwest because my partner at that time was getting a job at Seattle U. And so it was either I was going to stay in the Midwest, I was come out to the Northwest, so I moved to the Northwest. Again, coincidental that a Notre Dame alum in the prosecutor's office reached out to me and said, you should be an intern here. In between your second and third year of law school, you should be an intern in Norm Mailing's office at the King County Prosecutor's Office. And it was fabulous. The chance to try cases even as a law student was unbelievable. I got a job offer. I returned back to that office upon graduation and stayed there. Um, I ended up being Norm Mailing's deputy chief of staff. That, to me, is miraculous in itself, in the sense that I didn't know really what could I bring to this great prosecutor who really said to every deputy that he hired, our job as prosecutors is not to win convictions. Our job is to secure justice. That's why we're here. That's what we do. That was the mantra in the office. And I have to tell you, I felt like I belonged in this office. Things continue to converge, right? My values, my faith, my skills as a trial lawyer, my training as a lawyer, it all came together so well. I loved it. And then one day, I was asked to transfer to the civil division, which was good because in the civil division, in a prosecutor's office, you do civil defense work. So the clients are the elected officials, the clients are all the county agencies. So I got to do a lot of interesting work. And one of my clients happened to be the King County Superior Court, 50 judges. So I wasn't the personal lawyer, I was the lawyer to the entity, to the Superior Court. And I got to know many of the judges through that work. And then one day, 
a judge came to me and said, Mary, I'm going to be retiring, and I would love for you to replace me. And I thought, I don't think I'm ready to be a judge. I felt that I was a baby lawyer, and I was a baby lawyer. I was only a lawyer for seven and a half years. So to go from being a lawyer for seven and a half years to being a judge is like jumping the Grand Canyon uh, in the legal world. I was an older student because I had done all these other things. But nevertheless, I was really a young lawyer. I had a lot of experience because of what Norm had given to me. Big cases, lots of opportunities, and then to be a deputy chief of staff. But that still doesn't substitute for years of service. And I just said, you know, Judge Nimi, I don't know if I'm ready for this. She just said, you know, I'm going to be sending my letter in, and I really would like to say that you should be appointed to this position. So I really want you to think about it. I thought about it and thought, well, you know, it doesn't hurt to apply. You've got to always take the opportunity to say I'm interested. And this is something that's a lesson that all of you need to think about. You can't wait for your being ready. Sometimes an opportunity is going to come, and you just got to say, I may not be ready, but I'm going to try it. And that's what I decided to do. I thought, okay, I'll go through the process. The process is filling out like a 50-page document. The process is being interviewed by everybody in the world. Right? Everybody's looking for the flaws in your personality and anything wrong that you've done. But you go through the whole interview process, and all of a sudden I find myself sitting in the governor's office. The governor at that time is Governor Gary Locke. Gary Locke used to be a former client. Right? He was the King County executive when I was in the prosecutor's office defending county agencies. So Gary knew me. And he just said, you know, Mary, what do you want to do? What do you want to do at the end of this? Do you, I mean, I'll give you a job in my policy office. Do you want to stay with Norm? What's your dream and what do you want to do? And I thought, I don't know. You know, at some point, maybe, yeah, I want to be a judge. And he said, I want you to think about this. He said, because I'm here in this office right now. You're sitting there. I have the power to actually make this happen. But I need you to tell me that this is what you want me to do that if I said I would appoint you, that you're going to say yes. And he said, you can never, ever, ever in life get a guarantee that an opportunity that comes now is going to come a second time. So you need to think about it. He said, because there's no guarantee I'm going to be sitting in this office and you're going to be sitting in that chair ever again. And I thought, oh, wow. And I have to admit, in that instantaneous moment, I said, Governor, if you were to appoint me, I would accept. And I had no idea what I was really doing. I mean, I knew I didn't want to run for an election. I, I just, there were so many things that I hadn't thought through in terms of consequences. But I did know, and the truth of it is, an opportunity may only come once, and you need to just decide yes or no. I decided yes. I was appointed to the King County Superior Court. I ran an election. It was a landslide win in my favor, and I was there for 14 years. And it was the best decision I ever made. It was an incredible time to be on that court. It was great. It took me, and I tell judges now, it takes five years to really learn the job, to learn how to really be a judge, to really listen, to be thoughtful, to learn that much law. It takes five years, and it takes time and it requires humility, which I learned. It was incredible. So now fast forward, 2014.
friend of mine on the court, Justice Stephen Gonzalez. He was here, I think, last year. Trial court judge appointed by Governor Gregoire calls me and says, <clears throat> one of our justices is going to be stepping down because he's sick, and you should apply. And I thought, <laughs> I love my job. I love the trial court. I love the drama. I love it all, right? <laughs> I mean, really. People think they're telling the truth on the stand. The lawyer thinks they're going to tell the truth. The person gets up, they're sworn in, and they tell the truth, which is a different story than what they tell the lawyer. I mean, where can you go for that drama? <laughs> I loved working with jurors, you know, who sincerely want to serve, even though it's an inconvenience. I mean, it was great. The 14 years were really incredible. So it wasn't that I was looking to go someplace else. I have always always, always, always as a lawyer and as a judge to talk about the importance of diversity, the importance of reflecting the community that we serve. So people knew that I'm always saying, geez, you need to apply for that job or you need to do this and you need to step up and we all ought to reflect the community that we serve. So my friend Justice Gonzalez says you need to apply and I thought, I don't know if I'm interested in the Supreme Court, but you know what? I'll be darned if there's going to be an applicant pool that does not include a woman of color. I can always say no, but I really thought I'm qualified and we should never, ever have an opportunity and not have members of our community apply. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. Pulled out that application. Now, after 14 years, right, it's like a 200-page document in terms of all the cases, all the lawyers. It's really comprehensive. But I'm not thinking that I'm really, again, going to get appointed because of, again, the mantra, appoint somebody but not somebody from... King County. But I thought as long as the governor has a choice, that to me was more important than anything else, is that the governor have a choice. 17 people applied. I was the only woman of color who applied. Chances of getting appointed, I thought zero to none. I'm finding myself after all these interviews sitting in the governor's office. And actually the first interview was in the governor's house because he was doing this very secretly. And I thought, oh, geez, this could get serious. And it lasted for a couple of hours. And he said, come back tomorrow. Came back the next day. We had another very lengthy conversation. Um, and at the end of the conversation, he says, you know, Judge you, if I appointed you, would you accept? And I guess that's what governors are supposed to ask, right? Because <laughs> if you're going to say no, then I mean, I don't know. Well, it's a little dance. It was the same speech almost, is if I appointed you, would you accept? And there was no question in my mind after going through all of that. I loved my job, and I just said, Governor, if you were to appoint me, I would absolutely say yes. I would accept. About an hour later, I get a call, and the governor says, you've got to come back down to Olympia tomorrow because we would like to then announce you as the new Supreme Court Justice. He said, but nobody's to know, not your colleagues, not anyone in the world. Nobody should know. And I think, how am I going to get out of my courthouse? even because all the rumors were starting to fly. The governor's going to make an announcement. So how was I even going to leave my courtroom, get out, and get down to Olympia? We worked it out. I had a great bailiff who is a mastermind at sneaking me out of the courthouse. <laughs> she and her husband had rented literally a black Tahoe that was as big as this room. I'm in there. We're on our way. The governor's office is briefing me about how this is all going to happen. Come the back way. Do this. Do that. Your colleagues at the Supreme Court don't even know who it is. Um, and it was the most magnificent day because the governor is a lawyer, trial lawyer himself. And he said, we are not making this announcement in my office like all other governors have done. We're going to walk down the steps of the legislature. We're going to walk over to the Supreme Court, and we're going to make the announcement 
the Supreme Court. It was the most magnificent moment in my career. I have a photo of it of there was nobody else around because he said your family and everybody else should go over around this way. And it's just you and me walking down these steps. It was a beautiful sunny day. We walked down the stairs. They had staged the media already, right? That the media um, was capturing this. And we walked over to the court, and he made the announcement at the Supreme Court out of respect for the court. It was an unbelievable moment. Um, and then, again, fast forward to what I said, the media attention. I, I just couldn't tell you. It just was constant. Every opportunity to be on television, to talk to reporters, to talk to everybody. And it hasn't stopped in the sense that I've been around the state. And most of the invitations to speak are coming from elementary schools or um, middle schools. Uh, but kids, kids who want to come to the temple, kids who want to hear the story, kids who are really now being pushed by teachers and parents to say, this is a chance for you to talk to a Supreme Court justice. Go ahead. Do that. I have to tell you, it is an incredible job. The Supreme Court is everything that you would want it to be. It is a court of debate. It is a court of thoughtful discussion. This court is unbelievable in terms of people who are so committed to trying to do the right thing, which surprised me. As a trial court judge, I didn't know what they were doing. I thought, why does it take you 11 months to make a decision? Why can't you do this quicker? Or why do we have to have dissents? You know, can't you figure this out and just be clear and give us a decision? You know, and after being there, I have so much respect for dissent, right? You have to respect somebody who says, at the end of the day, after discussing this, I can't. I can't go along. I support this principle, and I can't, and I must dissent. And I think that is remarkable about our system of justice, the room for the dissenter. The dissenter writes to speak and explain. We just don't dissent. We explain why we dissent. We say, this is why I can't agree. This is why that may be a flawed analysis. This is why I can't do this. And sometimes I might be writing to a future court in my dissent so that someday it might get picked up, it might get looked at, and maybe that's going to be the law of the land into the future. One of the things that we do at the court, and not many people know about this, but I think it's very charming, and that is when we hear oral argument, we are together all day. And that is we prepare meals for each other. When we are together, we have breakfast together and lunch together. So we come, we start to gather around 8.30, 8.35. We go out on the bench at 9, but breakfast is already there. So as we're gathering, we're eating. We have a robing room, and I've posted this on my Facebook page because I think everybody should know everything. And it's a great, it's like a locker room, but fancy, fancy <laughs> lockers, right? They're wooden, but our robes are in there, so we actually robe together in the sense I take off my suit jacket, we robe together, we line up in a hall, and then we go out. And then when we come back, we conference a case, that is discuss it. Um, but the one thing that we do is we have lunch together then at that time is we rotate turns. We take turns preparing a meal for our colleagues. And what that does, right, the breaking of bread together creates community. It creates community. You sit down. So now it's not just talking about the cases, but you might say, so how is your son? And how was that soccer game? Or you just got back from vacation, and how was that? Or you might say, geez, my mother's very ill. Um, you know, but it's a chance to really know each other, to break bread, and to still be together and discuss cases. It's an amazing tradition. Back east, they kind of left. It sounds podunky, right? That they bring in food and they're cooking and they're eating. 
you know, a lot of courts don't do that, but that is extraordinary and it's unique here. And that was started by Chief Justice Gary Alexander. Um, he thought it would be really good for people to eat together, just an old-fashioned idea. Let's eat together because that's a good thing to do. We are the first supermajority female court in the state of Washington. Um, there are six of us, and a question people often ask is, does it really matter? I don't want to feed stereotypes, and yet, you know what I think it matters? It matters because we really want to discuss the cases. It's not hurry up and decide. It really is discuss, and we do discuss the cases. And it may take a long time, or it may not. The process of deciding cases, I'll also tell you this so that you also know how it works. The cases come in because we decide what cases to accept. These are cases that are accepted on petitions for review. We meet in two departments. So if you see the bench, if you have a visual image of how the bench is, the Chief Justice sits in the middle. The person who's most senior sits to her right, and then the next person on her left is the next senior, and that's how we alternate, right? So this is the court. So I'm the junior most justice. I'm to her furthest left. The next junior is to her furthest right. If you were to take that and fold that into a table, that's how we sit when we discuss cases. So you take that bench, you fold it up, so I'm sitting across from the next junior justice across from me at the furthest end, and that's how we sit. When we have two departments, that table is just split in half, and the chief sits in both departments. When we sit in department, if we vote all unanimously, we can speak for the court. So in terms of a petition for review, when a petition comes in, we'll review it to decide whether we accept it. If we all five decide to accept review, we accept review for the court. If it's a divided vote, then it goes to the whole court. And when we go to the whole court, we sit in what's called en banc, and we do that once a month, and we decide then all the cases that the departments could not agree on whether to accept or not. So let's just say we accept a case. We set it for the next term. At the beginning of the term, or just at the end of the following term, all the names of the cases are put into a bowl. All the justices are put into another bowl. And it's at a table. All the law clerks are invited to come. And the clerk pulls a case out, pulls out the name of a justice, and says, this case is assigned to this justice. That's how it happens. Nobody knows that. It's very confidential. So nobody other than the justices and the staff know who has a case assignment. Once that case is assigned to a justice, Let's just say it's assigned to me. I have the case. My job is to prepare a memo for all of the other justices. So I write a memo saying this is the case. These are the facts. These are the issues. This is the law. And this is how I recommend that we resolve this case. When the case comes for oral argument, because we haven't discussed it beforehand, we might chit-chat casually or I might go visit somebody and talk about a case. But generally, the court does not discuss a case until after we have heard oral, oral argument. Once we hear oral argument, we come right back into the conference room. And then the chief, who moderates the discussion, this is all very formal, will say, Justice Yu, this is your case. Would you please present? I stand up at my chair, and I recite, like you probably do in your class. You get up, you recite the facts, you recite the law, and then I say what my recommendation would be in terms of what the holding should be. Then I take questions. And the first time that I did this, I thought I was going to die. I thought, oh my God, eight justices have been here before are all asking me questions about my case. I had to know the law, right? Because they're asking, well, your recommendation, blah, blah, blah. So after all the questions have been answered, 
then the chief will ask, is there a contrary view? And somebody might get up, and this is the thing you just say, oh, please don't speak. But somebody gets up and say, well, I disagree with Justice Hugh, and this is the contrary view that I have, and this is how I think the court should hold. <coughs> then the chief entertains questions for that person, and then I get the chance to respond after all those questions. After that's all done, then the chief will say, are we ready to vote? And then we vote, and we vote in order. So I reported the justice right next to me is the next person, is the first person to vote. So the person who sits next to me is Justice Gonzalez. So he's the first person to exercise the right to vote and say, I will vote with Justice Yu, or I will vote with Justice Gordon McLeod. And then it goes around. At the end, it's tallied. Whoever has five, the chief might say, that's the majority view. So she'll say, Justice Yu, you only got four votes. Would you want to write the opinion the way that the court has decided it, or would you rather dissent? And then I have to decide whether I can change my mind and write for the court, as the majority has indicated, or whether I feel so strong. And I got four others or three others with me that I'm going to write the dissent. And I might say, Chief, I'm going to write the dissent. I can't write the way the majority of the court. And then she'll turn to the other justice and say, would you write the majority? They get the assignment. The assignment justice then writes an opinion, circulates it to everybody. And the thing that's so interesting is it goes to everybody. And any justice who suggests a modification, the authoring justice gets to decide whether to accept it or not. So if they do, you know what happens? It goes right back then, starts and goes back around all over. So everybody has to agree before a decision goes out, right, if you're in the majority. And that's the best part of this, is it's constantly being written, rewritten. Somebody might come to me and say, Justice you, if you have the majority, if you would change that word, I could sign. And I gotta decide whether I'll change that word or not. I might go back to the other people who've already signed and said, geez, Justice so-and-so says, if I change this word, would you agree? Could I do that? We do this all on paper, all hard copy. We do not do it on SharePoint. And the reason why, for a lot of reasons, confidentiality, but the worst case scenario, if you put a document on a computer and you ask eight or nine lawyers to look at it, what are we all gonna do? We're gonna edit regardless of whether we really are fixed on a view, it's just a temptation. So the hard copy really fosters a sense of discipline, a sense of confidentiality. You're really thinking something through before you're proposing changes. When we all agree, when it's all said and done, or maybe we don't agree, but everybody's finished, then it goes to another office that's called the office of the reporter's office. And they take that and they scrub it, not for content, but they look at it. It's a legal, technical review. Citations, quotes, everything to make sure that it is absolutely correct in terms of the citations and the quotes that you've used in this. After that's done, then it's filed and it's an official opinion of the court. That's the process. Process I didn't know as a trial court judge until I got there. It's amazing to me. So I have to admit, I like talking about it because I think everybody should know what that process is like, how it works, the debate, the discussion, um, and the controversy that occurs in that room. You should feel comfortable that you have a court that is willing to disagree with itself. I know it's hard for many people in the public who would say, five, four decisions that's split, that's okay. It might be okay that there's a dissenting view. There's disagreement. Sometimes there's a 9-0, and we celebrate that because it's a really clear principle that we could all agree on. I think that's always better. Not in every case, but that happens. I'll say two more things. 
charter school case. I don't know if people heard about it, watched it, tracked it. I can't talk about the merits of it because it's on a motion for reconsideration. The one thing that I can talk about is the timing of its release. It was the case that was released on Friday afternoon before Labor Day. And it's really important for all of you to know that that was not done intentionally. People think we did that on purpose. And I just want to tell you, we're not that smart. We're not that sophisticated. In all earnest, we are really focused more on the decision. And we don't really start, and we should, but we're not sitting there thinking, when should we release this? And what's the timing? We don't have somebody who works at the court who thinks about the political timing or any of that. We should have somebody who thinks about that. Not the politics, but about the release and the urgency of certain cases. We focus on what we're doing. So it was not, I can tell you, on purpose. What had happened was it was in its final stages and there was a sense that we need to get it out before the school year starts, not knowing that charter schools are already in school. Nobody knew that. And the chief's directions were simply when the technical review is done, it should get out right away. Right? That was the direction. It should get out right away as soon as that review is done. The review didn't get done until Friday at like about 2.30, 3 o'clock, and it takes that long then. So out it goes on a Friday at 4 o'clock, off the timing of when we normally release it because the chief's direction was get it out as soon as it's done. We did not, no matter what anybody thinks, pick a day that was a bad media day before a holiday to release it on purpose. I can just tell you it was not intentional. Um, it has caused great pain in many people's lives in terms of people thought we did it on purpose. Um, everybody on the court is taking the heat and we should deserve to take the heat. So I'm not here to say don't criticize us. You should criticize us. It's okay to criticize us. I just want you to know that we would never intentionally want to create that kind of feeling or harm or do something on purpose. We just are not that sophisticated to be thinking about a slow news day. We just, I, we just don't have that kind of sophistication in terms of thinking about it. So it wasn't on purpose in terms of the release. I will defend every decision that this court makes. Um, and again, there are motions for reconsideration, and we are thoughtful, and we will always look at everything that comes before us. But I just felt the need to say that because the way that it got spun um, was that we did it on purpose to try. I don't know why, what anybody would do it. Um, it's not like you could escape the impact of it, um, but you just need to know it. So I'm going to stop talking. I've been talking for a very long time. Um, I would love to answer any questions that you might have about anything that I've said anything I didn't say or something that you just might be curious about. Thank you very much. You're welcome.